Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Dave Jenkinson continues our series on Lessons from Life Stories, looking at the life of Nathan. And now, here's Dave. Nathan actually means given by God. And he comes on stage during the time of David and Solomon. First appears in the uh, consultation with David about the rebuilding of the temple. You find this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verses 2 to 3. There, David is musing after having just built his rather beautiful palace uh, of cedar. And he looks around and says to Nathan the prophet, um, you know, here I am dwelling in a in a palace of cedar and God's dwelling is still in a tent. And as a result of this, Nathan looks at David's uh, response and and he says to, to David, you know, whatever you do, all that is in thine heart. And David says, well, I'd like to build a house uh, for Jehovah, for Yahweh. And uh, that same night, the Lord gives a divine message to Nathan. And Nathan has a dilemma. He's told by the Lord in no uncertain terms that David is not going to do this. He's not the man for the job. Put yourself for a minute in Nathan's dilemma. He had just told the king to go ahead. How would you feel? How did Nathan feel? I think he probably felt embarrassed. He'd gone ahead of God and made assumptions that were not from the Lord. Prophets are not really noted for doing this, and you don't do well when you speak on behalf of the Lord without the Lord's endorsement. Secondly, it was an incorrect statement. He had given, well, what he thought was accurate advice, and normally you can be assured that if the king's heart is at peace and the matter is right, but there's never any disagreement with the clear word of God And when God's word comes to guidance, it's as clear as can clear can be. God had showed him that it was important to follow God's way. There are examples of this in real life as well. God says, don't lie. And I just love the book, The Hiding Place, where Corey Tanboom relates a story of how they discovered that lying was one of the most difficult things that they experienced while they were under uh, German occupation during the Second World War. As those of you who've read the story, uh, the setting is Peter, who's returned home from prison and now faces a new danger. Soldiers are seizing males between 16 and 30 to work in the German munitions factories. So they decide to, to readiness for such a seizure to build a hiding place under the kitchen table. And during a birthday celebration, the forces come in and seek to uh, capture the, the two boys, Peter and the older brother, Bob. They hide underneath the table in a special hiding place that had been built for that very purpose. But two soldiers question uh, the daughter if she has brothers and tells the truth because she's been taught to do so her whole life. And when the two soldiers question again, where is she? Where are her brothers? She laughs hysterically and says, well, they're under the table. And, of course, they just 
in sensing that moment, think she's just making fun of them. They glance briefly under the table, see nothing, and leave the house in frustration. But it actually, she told the truth. And yet, still, the boys were saved. Later, the family is divided as whether she did right in telling the truth. Noli says, God honors truth-telling. Another points out, telling lies and doing lies, like false papers and stolen ration cards, are much the same thing. Corey's frustrated because she knows that she's right in the thick of things at this point in her story and knows that showing truth and love at the same time is difficult in this world, but realizes that God always shows truth and love and did so especially when Christ died on the cross. And so Nathan would have not only felt these two feelings, but he also felt badly, for he knew deep down that David longed to build a temple for the Lord and must have thought that telling the king that God had said he would not would be the hardest thing he would have to be called to do, to oppose the king. Imagine having told the king to go ahead and the very next day come back and tell the king he wasn't a man for the job. Yet God does not change. Hebrews 13 and 8 says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he has a plan. And while that plan does not include David building the temple, the good news was that it would be his son who would build the temple. And just as the father did not die on the cross, but rather it was the son who was nailed to the tree, so too it was the son of David, Jesus, who would build the kingdom of God. In Matthew sixteen eighteen, in a response to... Uh, a confession by Peter, Jesus says it this way, And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's a wonderful poster on the walls in the youth room at BFA. Some of you have seen it. Every time I see it, it brings me joy. It's a simple photo. It's a large steel mallet and three long Roman nails with these words, Son, I want you to build a bridge to heaven. Here's your construction tools. Nathan refers, returns to tell the king that the Lord had dwelt in a tent since Egypt and uh, to now, and God had never asked the people to build him a house of cedar, and he had taken David from being a shepherd following sheep to being a ruler over Israel. Moreover, the nation of Israel would dwell in the place of their own and move no more, and the Lord was instead going to build David a house. One who shall come from you will build a house for me. So instead of David building a house for the Lord, the Lord promises to build a house for David. What a wonderful promise. And it reminds us again that this is the method of salvation. It's not us building a ladder to heaven by our good works. It's not us doing things that are righteous and good and pure and honest. These are things that a Christian should do. But that does not bring us to heaven. Rather, it is the Lord who has brought us into heaven. And in fact, Paul says in Colossians and in Ephesians that we're already seated in the heavenlies. And so this elicits a beautiful prayer of thanksgiving from David. If you haven't got a chance, uh, we can't read it all right now, but we would like to read a few verses. It's from 2 Samuel seven twenty-one to 28. And I'll just read the latter part of it. Verses 27 puts it this way. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it. And with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever.
And the wonderful thing about that, that prayer is that prayer has been answered. For we know that Luke, as he uh, speaks of the uh, genealogy, the, the lineage of Jesus, he speaks of that lineage as being that which would come through, um, Nathan, Nathan's line. And, uh, it's, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful reminder again that God is at work building in our lives. You know, sometimes I wonder if we, we need to have a little t-shirt made for each Christian. I'm not finished yet. The work of God and salvation is finished, but we're not finished. The, the building is still going on in our lives. And so the next time we find Nathan, it's uh, it's an association with chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. And, of course, this is a discussion of um, David's downfall. Now, it's not the one thing that, that he had done that displeased the Lord, but it's definitely said in verse 27 of that same chapter, uh, David had sent and brought her into his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. And this thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so Nathan the prophet um, comes in and has to speak negatively towards um, the king once more. And in this famous story he gives about a rich man and a small who owned many sheep and a, a poor man who had only but one sheep and a one small lamb who he treated almost like a pet. And then it is that the rich man has a need for some lamb meat and decides to take the poor man's uh, little lamb and use it for the meal. And uh, at this, uh, as he's describing this, um, the, the the this whole story is so powerfully described that David just says, may it never be. This is wrong. This is absolutely wrong. And um, David responds, that, like, this is something needs to be addressed. He should restore it fourfold. And the Lord said that after he said this, as the Lord lives, you are the man. The man that has done this, you are that man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. Verse 9, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You killed Uriah the Hittite. You took his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the swords of the people of Ammon. Thou, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me. Now, just as an aside here, have you noticed that? That sin is actually despising God? That when we sin against one another, we're actually showing a a, a disrespect towards the Lord. That's the way the Lord looks at it. And he says, for what you did secretly, I will do this thing before all Israel, before the Son. In other words, he says, I will raise up in you from your own house and I will take your wives and give them to your neighbor. And um, David says, I have sinned against the Lord, verse 13. That's a powerful statement. That's a very humbling statement for a political leader to say, I have done wrong. I have sinned before the Lord, against the Lord. There's no question in my mind that Nathan, as a representative of God, saw the contrition of David's heart even as king. If you read Psalm 51, uh, you, this psalm, as most scholars believe, was written during this time when David was... Um, out of fellowship with God in, in this position of having committed adultery and murder. 
and just uh he, he describes how how his uh, his whole relationship was wrong and and then he describes the 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 joy of being restored and uh, the, he david is uh has said i have sinned but nathan says the lord will put away your sin you shall not die now it's interesting that um there was uh, death as a consequence for murder. Death was a consequence for adultery. Lies had other consequences, but two out of the three things that he had done there had the death as a consequence. But in this case, the Lord says, I'm going to forgive you. But because of this deed, you've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child who's been born to you shall surely die. And Nathan departed. And as a result of this, the Lord struck the child Verses 15, and uh, it became ill, and the Lord God, uh, David pleaded with God for the child, and fasted, and went in, and lay all night before the, on the ground. And on the seventh day, the child died. Verse 18. And then, as he deals with this, this uh, situation, after he perceives the child has died, it says that David washed, rounded himself, changed his clothes, went into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. What a response to death. He worshipped. A true uh, worshipper of the Lord always responds to sorrow and grief with worship. Do you respond that way? It's not the easiest thing, is it? What is this that you have done, they said. You fast and wept for the child while he's alive, but when the child died, you rose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious that the child may live? But now he is dead, and why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? But I shall go to him. He shall not return to me. By the way, an aside here. A little child who dies, what we call before the age of accountability. According to this verse, it was of the view of David and uh, seems to be the prevailing view of the scriptures. That child is in paradise. I shall go to him. He shall not return to me. And then it says, And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son and called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. And so in this second section, it reminds us again that God is at work even despite the sinfulness of David in this experience. You know, marriage is to be one man and one woman for their entire lives, but sometimes divorce, adultery, sinfulness comes in. And you know that life is never really perfect in this side of eternity. Our salvation is guaranteed. Our salvation is secure. But uh, in David's case, he messed up pretty big time. I think we've all said we've messed up pretty big time, but uh, salvation is of the Lord. The third section tells us that Nathan works behind the scene to ensure the actual coronation of Solomon during the transition from David's rule to the next generation of kings in his family. And this is found in First Chronicles 22 and, and First Kings 1, 10 through 38. As you know, there was a series of sons that David had. Uh, Absalom rebelled against David and almost took over the kingdom, uh, forcing David to leave uh, Jerusalem and uh, um, 
there was a number of sons that had sought to usurp and become the king of Israel. They they saw David growing feebler and wanted to take over the throne. Um, but uh, Absalom, another son, um, came to the point where he felt it was time to proclaim himself uh, king. And uh, at this point in time, we discover that First Kings chapter 1 gives us a good explanation of how Nathan is involved in that whole process. And Nathan, um, he spoke to um, Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? So please let me now give you advice. It may save the life and the life of your son Solomon. Go immediately to King David and say, Did you not, my lord, O king, swear to your maidservant, saying, Assuredly, your son Solomon shall reign after me and shall sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? And while you're still talking, I will come in after you and confirm your words. And so this is exactly what happens in First Kings chapter 1. And as it happens, they proceed to anoint Solomon uh, king. And after this uh, anointing of King Solomon, it says that King Solomon then becomes the actual recognized king in Israel. Wonderful moment of time. You know, transition of leadership is uh, is probably one of the most challenging things in any organization, be it a business, be it a church, or be it a presidency. And uh, certainly some of us have been witnessing some of the transitions that have taken place over this past uh, political year into our neighbors to the south. What is our response to be to that? Should we disdain with pride and say, oh, I'd never do that. Our country would never do that. Or should we simply do as First Timothy chapter 2 tells us, to pray for kings and for those who are authority? You know, there's a great responsibility. I remember one day th- uh, watching the uh, previous uh, candidate, Trump, as he uh, proceeded down the escalator. And as he proceeded down the escalator, my thought was, um, and I, I say that in uh, in respect now, but I, it was in, in error at that point. How could such a, a person be even considered for the presidency? Uh, and yet, um, while you may not agree with everything he's done, there's many who uh, would have agreed that he was a, a good president. And uh, many would have agreed that uh, the former president was also a good president. Uh, so we can just pray for the new president, and we can also pray for uh, righteousness to rule, that Jesus will be exalted and the word of God will go forth with liberty and power. So what uh, what can we learn from the, the accounts of the life of Nathan? Well, first of all, I think we can first learn that all past, present kings or rulers of authority need to seek the guidance of God so that uh, their plans uh, are in consistency or in agreement with God's plans. You know, the uh, the word of God is pretty clear. Psalm twenty two twenty eight says it this way, The kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over nations. Or Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord has established his throne in heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar, during the time of Daniel, had to learn that there was somebody higher. Even though he had been proclaimed by Daniel as the head of gold, he had this concept that he was ultimately in charge. And he had to learn 
in order that the living may know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men, Daniel 4.17, or that you will have to know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men, verse 25. Inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump, it may be assured that you will come to know that heaven rules. And verse 32, until you know the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, it gives it to whoever he chooses to. Are you getting this? <laughs> you who are in authority, uh, you could be in a very high position right now, uh, even a position as a, as a CEO for a company. Please remember, you're not there because of your skills or talents. You're there because the, the Lord rules and he has permitted you to be there. Daniel 5.21 says it this way. Uh, he was driven from the sons of man. His heart was made like the beasts. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass and oxen. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. Proverbs 21.1 puts it this way. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. And this is also true for those who are in church leadership. First Timothy 3, 4 says, One who rules his household well, having his children in submission with all reverence. Those who are in church leadership need to have their own house in good leadership. They need to be a good leader in the house. If you can't rule the house of God or the house of your own, how can you rule the house of God? Second Timothy 2, 5 says, And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And we knew need to compete that way. We do need to operate in this world according to the rules. The second lesson I'd like to remind us is that morality and fidelity to marriage makes a difference. In David's case with Bathsheba, he had committed adultery, but then he married this gal, and in the subsequent account, and acknowledging his sin, he doesn't suddenly say, oh, I have to divorce my 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 uh, my my woman that I committed adultery with. No, in fact, he raises up sons. Solomon becomes king, and he loves her. And uh, so there is a sense where um, finality has occurred, and those who are now divorced and remarried, and are believers serving God, um, just continue on doing what God has called you to do. But David's sin. It was not the first or last time he sinned, but sinfulness does make a difference. Some would say that a sinning individual as a believer being born again, where could you claim that they're a new creation? Second Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Um, so how can you say that there is a new creation if there's still sin in one's life? Well, the key is that we've been given a new heart, a new life, and a new mind, Romans 12, 1 and 2. We have a transformed character, but we still have the capacity and sometimes the unwelcome desire to continue doing wrong. The difference now is that we are in God's family. The Father corrects and disciplines us, but he never forsakes us. The key is, are you in the Father's family? Does he know you? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, that very strong statement by Jesus, I never knew you, depart from me. And he said it in um, Matthew chapter 25, when he spoke to the young maidens, depart from me, I never knew you, I never know you. 
And so, but he does say of this, of Abraham, he said, I know him, Genesis 18 and 19. And of Moses, I know him by name, Exodus 33, 12. So to be known by God is a higher blessing than all, for it is to be known by God, and as well, we know him. And so it's, it's, it's one thing to be worshiper of the, the Lord, uh, a follower of Jesus. But in the relationship we're speaking about today, David acknowledged that he was known by God. He was loved by God. He was his child. And that is how he could write, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. With during this very difficult time, it's it's so easy to say we can't do anything, but let us do what we can for the Lord. Let us live for him. Let us pray for him. Let us be faithful in witnessing for him. It may only be somebody that you may be passing that needs some help. It may be somebody that you're passing that needs a kind smile. But in all of these things, let us remember that God has a plan. He hasn't left you he has not deserted you even during this time. Let's let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We pray that you'll bless this word as it goes forth and many lives will be touched for you. And we give you our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.